We've had some very profitable times, and the Lord has shaped our hearts and forced us to reckon with things that are heavy, hard, and to see our own depravity, fallenness, and weakness. And, and we need to be confronted with those things. We need to be reminded of who we are before the holiness of our God. But we also mustn't forget our God who is good, whose mercy is forever sure, and his faithfulness at all times stands and shall age to age endure. And so I'm encouraged that as we enter into this summer series of looking at the Psalms, that we'll be reminded of who our God is. That we'll be reminded of who our God is and how great he is and how worthy he is to be praised and how worthy he is to be worshipped how worthy he is to have our lives submitted fully to his lordship um, and his glory. So, we're entering into this series as a change of pace. Um, the change of pace. A few summers ago, we did a series uh, with the men of the church through the summer, teaching through hymns. So we took a handful of, of hymns, old and new, and we sang them together over in the fellowship hall where it makes everyone sound a thousand times better. And then we taught the text of the hymns so that we would understand the truth that we were singing. So that we wouldn't just sing the words that are on the screen, but that we would sing the truths that are being communicated um, as, we, as these hymns sort of exposit the word of God. Uh, these hymns that we sing are almost, they're like musical sermons. They're unpacking the truths of scripture and preaching them to us as we sing them um, together. And so this series has got a similar uh, sort of goal and focus to help us to understand what we sing and to shape our singing. Last month, I mentioned my desire uh, as the worship pastor in this church to lead this church um, to begin singing psalms in our corporate worship in obedience to Colossians 3.16 and other passages of Scripture. And so this series is going to help us to, one, understand the Psalms, the Word of God, but also to understand how this will be beneficial for us and how this is needed for us to do, to be acquainted with these Psalms more than just in our morning uh, quiet time devotional reading, but also to have them connected to our devotion as we have sung them together corporately. And as we join in with the ancient tradition of the church um, in many ages. So, so what's the goal in this? The goal is the vision that the Apostle Paul gives us in Colossians 3.16. That the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. The goal of this is that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And whatever we do in word or deed, that we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, so that is our goal. God's will for us is that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. I, I want this church to be so captivated by the word of God that one of our great joys 
would be gathering together to sing it. That we're so in love with the word that we gather together to sing it with true infectious joy that would make people in Valdosta go, what is going on over there? What is going on over there? Those crazy people at Perimeter Road. That is my desire for this church. So, when we look at singing the Psalms, first, what is Psalm singing? Because most of us come from a tradition where we didn't do this, myself included. Um, we have sang hymns and, and uh, contemporary Christian songs or choruses, whatever you call those things. Um, and often those are based on the Psalms. Um, we may even sing particular sections of the songs that are pretty close. Um, but what I'm talking about when I say singing the Psalms or Psalm singing is actually singing the inspired texts, the inspired text of the Psalms. So these aren't songs based on Psalms. They are the Psalms. You see the difference there? So what we just sang, and all people that on earth do dwell, Psalm 100, is not a hymn based on Psalm 100. It is essentially a translation of Psalm 100 that has meter and rhyme in the English language. Um, So think of the Psalms that I'm talking about tonight as a type of translation, if you will, a helpful category. Think about it like a NLT compared to an ESV, sort of like a, a, um, a translation, but it's not necessarily rigid, uh, and it's not a paraphrase either. It's somewhere in between. But what I'm getting at is it is the text. And so I encourage you as we work through this Uh, this text of all people that on earth do dwell, that you would open your Bibles, and go ahead and do that. Open your Bibles to Psalm 100. And as I work through the text of the psalm here from the Psalter, that you would compare it with the ESV or whatever translation you have. And I think that's the best way for you to get it, when you see them side by side, um, what we're talking about here. Um, This hasn't always been a foreign practice to Christians. Um, This is sort of a lost tradition Um, in our age. This was the practice of the Israelites. Obviously, they spoke Hebrew, and this was their their hymnal, if you will, their prayer book. But this was also the practice of the early church. Um, And this was a Reformation priority. In fact, this was one of the first Reformations that took place in the Protestant Reformation, was the sort of restoration of psalm singing, and particularly congregational singing. It hadn't been that way for a long time in the medieval church. But one of the first things the reformers did in their reforming of the church was to restore the role of congregational singing in the life of church, in corporate worship. And the Psalter was at the heart of that. Here's what Luther says about the Psalter. He says, what else is the Psalter? If you're not from like a Christian background, Psalter is just a way of describing the book of Psalms like a hymnal psalter. That's what I'm talking about. Luther says, what else is the psalter than prayer to God and praise to God that is a book of hymns? Therefore, the most blessed spirit of God, the father of orphans, the teacher of infants, seeing that we know not or how we ought to pray, as the apostle says, 
and desiring to help our infirmities after the manner of schoolmasters who compose for children letters and short prayers that they may send them to their parents, so prepares for us the book or the Psalter, both the words and feelings with which we should address our heavenly Father. I was pretty wordy of what he's saying here is that God is like a schoolmaster. He's like a teacher. He's like a Sunday school teacher. And we're the children who are weak and ignorant and we need to be taught. And so God plays the role of that Sunday school teacher and gives us a book of prayers, gives us a book of Psalms that we can take home and learn how to pray and learn how to sing. And not only what words to say, but what feelings should accompany those prayers. What feelings should accompany those prayers? See, we can make two mistakes when we think about feelings in worship. Uh, the, the common role of feelings in worship and the, the large realm of evangelicalism today is that feelings are king and that feelings are that all that matters. And whatever you feel, if it feels right, it is right, right? We, we see that a lot. And so we can overreact to that and, and fall off into the ditch on the other side of the road by saying feelings don't matter and you shouldn't have feelings in worship. It's all about the truth, right? The truth is king. Feelings need to take back seat. But the biblical picture is that truth and feelings go hand in hand, that we are created as thinking and feeling beings. What it means to be in the image of God is to be a thinker, feeler, and so we, we shouldn't separate these things. And so Luther is saying God has given us a book that teaches us how to do that. We need help. Here, Calvin said, um, although we look far and wide and search on every hand, we shall not find better songs nor songs better suited to that end than the Psalms of David, which the Holy Spirit made and uttered through him. And for this reason, when we sing them, we may be certain that God puts the words in our mouths as if himself sang in us to exalt his glory. Oh, that's a great picture. That God himself, like we can be confident when we sing the Psalms, that God himself is singing through us, exalting his own glory. Oh, what an opportunity and a privilege is that, to play that role. So it's a lost tradition that was once commonplace in Christianity. And I said last month that if you, you talk to early Christians from the early centuries of the church and they visited our services, they'd be shocked that there was no singing of the Psalms. Not only that, in our day of ever-changing and trend-chasing entertainment and a manufactured commercial Christianity, Psalm singing will stand out and be a compelling testimony to the sufficiency of Scripture and faith in the foolishness of God overcoming the wisdom of the world. I'm all about that. If people think you're a fool, lean into that. Because guess what? God says, I've put my power there. I've put my power there. My, God's loaded weapons is in the foolishness of the gospel, the foolishness of his word. And God is pleased when his, the foolishness of God triumphs over the wisdom of the world. And, and if there's anything that we want to exalt at Primitive Road, it is the wisdom and power of God through the preaching of the gospel and the sufficiency of Scripture. 
Psalm singing gives us a very uh, tangible and sensory way to communicate that um, in our community. And so that's some of the what and why of psalm singing. So I wanted to sort of start the night and start this series with that. Um, And I have taught many times um, in the past um, about singing in in general and how that has been powerfully designed by God to take ideas, these abstract ideas and thoughts and truths and that we know in our mind and singing pushes them down into the core of our being. That's why we sing. So the truth of God gets pressed into our soul deeply. And so for the rest of our time tonight, I'm going to just sort of briefly point out some of those truths that God wants us to have pressed down deep into us from Psalm 100. And then we'll sing it again. Uh, and maybe even this time acapella, because I heard some great harmonies uh, a little bit ago. So, Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is a call to worship psalm. It calls us to worship God. And not only does it just call us to worship God and leave it there, but it tells us why we should. And, and I love that. I love that. When we tell somebody to do something but never tell them why they should, it's not helpful. God knows that. So he tells us to worship him. He also tells us why we should, as if it wasn't already obvious. Because God is like that. He condescends. He goes way lower than he needs to, way lower than he has to, in order to show us who he is. It's also a prophetic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm. It's a psalm speaking of Christ and his kingdom when all nations have full access into the presence of God. I mean, think about this. You have the Israelites singing this psalm in worship, all people that on earth dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, come into his courts, but they couldn't in that time. Gentiles were not allowed into the courts. They were not allowed into the sanctuary. This is a prophetic psalm. It's telling us what Christ is going to do. And so when we Gentiles sing this psalm, check this out. When we sing this psalm, we are living proof of its authenticity. We are living proof that what it tells us to sing about is true. And we are living proof of the power of the word of God. And so it's a fulfillment of the psalm we're singing when we sing it. That's awesome. So let's let's get into the psalm itself. Stanza 1, as we sing it, contains verses 1 and 2 in the text of your Bible. It says, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. So what we see here is that that all people are commanded to worship God. All people are commanded to worship God, Jew or Gentile. Why? It's going to tell us why in a little bit, because he is the God of all, and he is worthy of all worship. Men, women, children, every class. Every color belongs to the Lord and are commanded to worship him. The greatest injustice in the world is that God goes unworshipped because that's what he has to do. And so he commands all people to worship him. And he commands people to worship him, but specifically he commands all people to sing. He commands all people to sing. So I'm just going to go ahead and start throwing some heat right here. 
If, if you're one of the people who, who say, I just don't sing, I don't sing, other people sing, that's how they worship, I don't worship in singing, then friend, you're in direct disobedience to the word of God. And, and you know what we call that? Sin. You're, you're in sin. If you say, I do not sing, you are putting your hand in the Lord's face and saying, stop talking to me, I don't do that. And so God, our creator, commands all people on earth to sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. There's many reasons why maybe we don't like to sing. Maybe we're embarrassed of our voice. Maybe we don't know how to sing. And what do you do when you struggle with obedience in any area of your Christian life? You seek help. You seek help. Historically, the church has led the way in music education. Um, and, and, and I'm learning that, that we need to reclaim that, and I need to reclaim that, because I have assumed that everyone gets music the same way that I do. It's like, what do you mean you can't sing the song? It goes like this. <laughs> and I realize that's just not how it is. Um, but I can help you, and I'm, I'd be glad to help you learn to sing at least to stumble your way through it, right? The Lord perfect, perfects our offerings of worship. So even if it's not the greatest singing, uh, he accepts it. But he commands us to do it. And so seek help and, and let's, let's sing to the Lord. Now it says sing to the Lord and that's sing to Yahweh. So there's, there's one particular God, the true and living God. That is who we sing to. So that tells us that our singing is directed to God. And so that, that deals with excuses for not singing as well. Because, yes, other people are present, and, and in a way you are addressing one another. I talked about that last time. But we're aiming to please God in our singing. We're aiming to be obedient to God in our singing. We're singing to the Lord, not one another. It says, sing to the Lord with a cheerful voice or a joyful noise. This is the joyful noise passage. Um, with joy. Sing to the Lord with joy. Christians are to be joyful people, and we see that over and over um, throughout this passage, an appeal to joy. Um, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the application of redemption. Something that Jesus purchased for you on the cross and by sending his Spirit is your joy. That's something he wants to give you, and he died to accomplish that for you. And so his blood and his application of redemption isn't too weak to accomplish that in you. You can be a joyful person because the Lord Jesus died to accomplish that for you. And then he commands us to sing with a, with a cheerful voice. Um, so some of you sing, but you don't sing cheerfully. You don't sing with a joyful noise. Lord commands us to, and in a minute, he's going to tell us why we should. And, and so we should seek to be fully obedient to these commands, to sing with joy. And, and men, this is hard for us. It's hard for us. If speaking generally, if anyone struggles with singing with joy in this church, it's the men. Now, there are a few men that I know are in this room right now who just completely counter that. But generally speaking, when I'm up here on Sunday mornings, 
leading and, and scanning across the congregation, it is the men who is standing there singing like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's the men. God says, sing to the Lord with a cheerful noise. This word, uh, joyful noise, can, is also translated elsewhere in Scripture as triumphantly, with a triumphant noise. This is me. We've been talking about this, uh, my friend group and people I'm talking to. Why do we have a hard time singing as men? I think we think it's effeminate. Um, I think we, we think it's effeminate. And I think a lot of it is because sometimes it is. And I think singing the Psalms will help because these are manly songs that we sing. These are manly songs. So you're not effeminate if you sing. Sing like a man. Sing like David sang before going out and slaying 400,000 people. (laughs) You're a warrior and warriors sing. Sing with joy because our God is triumphant. He triumphs and goes before us with a mighty triumph over his foes. Those are lines that we sing. William Plummer, he, he re, he's a dead Puritan that just punched me right in the heart this morning. Talking about this half-hearted worship of God and not just singing, but all of life. He says, reluctance in God's service is not essentially different from refusal to engage in it. We'll say that again. Reluctance in God's service is not essentially different from refusal to engage in it. Where there is no gladness in us, there is no acceptance with God. As Bodie Bauckham would say, if you can't say ouch, say amen, or if you can't say amen, say ouch. So here's my challenge to, to everyone who struggles to sing joyfully in this church. Put half-hearted singing to death like you would any other sin. Put half-hearted singing to death like you would any other sin. I can't stand up here and tell you what joy looks like and how to be joyous, but I know it when I see it, and you know it when you experience it. And you know it when you fight against it. The Lord calls us to put that to death. Next, it says, serve him with joy, his praises tell. Come now before him and rejoice. So what we see here is that corporate worship is a coming before God. Corporate worship is a coming before God. Think about what happens on Sunday mornings when we gather for worship as covenant renewal. That God's people come before him as God. We hear his promises. We're warned of his curses. And we respond in faith and obedience to his word and worship. Worship is covenant renewal. We're standing in the presence of our king. We're standing in the presence of our king. When we talk about singing, we talk about the presence of God. Uh, I've run across this a lot as I've learned um, just the whole worship leading thing. is A lot of people think worship leaders lead them into the presence of God. Like That musician is really talented and he... He leads us into the presence of God. Or I've heard teaching on worship leading, and it's like, well, it's your calling to lead people into the presence of God. And I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that at all. 
I do not lead you into God's presence. If I, in and of myself, led you into God's presence, I would be vaporized before we got there. I'd be like Uzzah who tried to catch the ark when it was falling off the cart and God zapped him dead right there. I can't lead you into the presence of God. I am wholly unfit for that. But the good news is that God, that Jesus has already done that. Jesus has already brought us in through his flesh to the holy of holies and given us complete welcome and acceptance. So I can't lead you into God's presence. When we come together, that reality that Jesus has accomplished and purchased for us is made manifest. That when we gather in covenant renewal before our King, the reality that we are in the presence of God that is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ is made manifest in our lives. It is real. And now you might say, now, now God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. I'm in his presence in the shower. I'm in his presence at church. I'm in his presence in my car. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. But when we speak about coming into his presence in worship, there's, a, there's a, a different thing that we're talking about there. We're talking about manifestly. We're talking about his presence to bless and to be our God and we be his people and to display his means of grace and his blessings to us in a, in a unique and special way. And that happens every time we gather. It happens every time we gather. So it's important to gather. It's important to, to come before him and rejoice, to, to meet before our Lord. What happens on Sunday should be the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in your week should be what happens on Sunday because you come before your king and you get your marching orders. The most important thing that we do. And it's actually doing something to you. Even though Sundays when you don't feel like nothing happened, that was a double negative, but I don't care. Even those Sundays when you feel like nothing has happened and that you just wasted an hour and a half because your kid wouldn't be still, he was playing with the person's hair in front of you and they kept turning around. Or, or you just had something on your mind that you couldn't let loose of. But I promise you, something happened to your soul. The word of God went forth and it will not return to him in vain. You came before your king and he will not let you down. So it's important to gather. It's doing something to you. So that means it's worth it to make it happen. It's worth it to come before him. Come now before him and rejoice, which means if you don't come now before him, you're missing out. That you do have to come before him. I'm before him in the shower. I'm before him in my car. No, come now before him and rejoice with his people. Right? This is what the psalm is telling us. So it's, it's commanding us to worship and to sing to God. And so stanza two tells us why we should. He doesn't just command us. All God needs to do is tell us to do it, and, and he doesn't have to say anything else. We should do it. But he condescends, and he, he tells us why. It says, know that the Lord is God indeed. Why should we sing to God? Why should we worship God? Because he is God. Yahweh is God indeed. It says he formed us all without our aid, which means he created us, which means he owns us and that we owe our very existence to him. He formed us all without our aid. It might look a little different in the ESV. This is uh, based on the, the King James text. There's a textual variant there that's based on a single Hebrew letter. Uh, the ESV says something to the effect, he formed us and we are his. Um, formed us without our aid. 
Did any of you help God make you? Think about that. So why do we think we need to help God do other things in our life? He formed us all without our aid. He is God indeed. He cares for us. This reminds me of the kids' catechism that we're, that we're teaching our kids over here. Why ought you to glorify God? And the kids say, because he loves me, or he made me, and he takes care of me. That's what a song says. He formed us without his aid, and he's the flock that he, we feeds. We're the flock that he feeds. Because he made me, and he takes care of me. So Jesus cares for us like a flock. He, he's, the, he's the good shepherd, after all. Right? He leads us beside still waters, green pastures cares for us. So why should we sing to the Lord? Why should we worship him? Because he made us and he takes care of us. Now here's the application and why we need to sing these songs. Because how often do you need to be reminded deep down in your soul that the Lord is God indeed? How often do you need to be reminded that the Lord is God indeed? He made you. He cares for you. And whatever you're going through, he's got you. This is why we need to sing these truths, because it presses us down deep into our soul where it matters. Stanza three is another call to worship. I like how this is structured. It's very orderly. It's worship the Lord. Here's why. Worship the Lord. Here's why. Stanza three it says, oh, enter then his gates with joy. Within his courts his praise proclaim. This verse invites us to draw intimately near to God with no fear of being cast out. It invites us in. It invites us in. It says, come on in. Come near to God with no fear of being cast out. So when you come in Christ, you're welcome inside his gates. You're, you're welcome within his most holy courts. And you're not just some little guest that needs to sit there with your mouth closed and, and be quiet. No, it says enter in with joy. Within his courts, his praise proclaim. You know that one guy that always shows up to the party and it instantly gets better? Conversation goes up, the mood rises. God says, come into my presence like that with joy, with praise, proclaiming. That's how we come into presence, not with fear, not with timidity. Preacher to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, he, he, he puts it like this. I'm sure he's saying this psalm many times. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Enter in his gates with joy. Within his courts is praise proclaim. When your, your conscience weighs you down and tells you that your worship is unacceptable, be reminded of the blood of Jesus, the way that was opened for you through the flesh of Jesus that allows you to burst through those gates with joy. What a beautiful truth. 
So since this is true, second half of the stanza. Let thankful songs your tongues employ, O bless and magnify his name. Since this is true, the psalmist says, put your tongues to work. Since Jesus has done this, since he's opened the way for us to enter into the holy courts of God, put your tongues to work. Employ them in giving thanks. Let thankful songs your tongue employ. So here's a question. What is your tongue's main employment? What is your tongue's main employment? Is it thanksgiving or complaining? Is is your tongue employed in thankful songs or in grumbling? Is it worship or gossip? This, This psalm reminds us to put our tongues, which... Jesus says, reflects the true condition of our hearts to work in blessing and magnifying the name of the Lord. That's what it was created for, after all. So we are to worship God with our tongues, with thanksgiving. And then finally, the the last stanza gives us another reason to worship. It says, because the Lord our God is good. Because the Lord our God is good. I like the way the original text is kind of older English. This, is, this, this text was written uh, around uh, 1560. Um, it, it says, for why the Lord our God is good. I just think it's interesting. For why? Why should we sing with thankful tongues? Because God is good. Because God is good. And God isn't just described by goodness. God is goodness itself. We can't define God goodness by any other thing than God himself. He is good. He's goodness itself. Just like in English, the Hebrew word for goodness can be a noun or an adjective. God is good. He is good because he is good. (laughs) Think about that. So, let's think about our tongues and our complaining and the goodness of God. What should we conclude from this? The Lord is good. He's God. We should stop complaining about his providence. We should stop complaining about his providence. There's not enough hours in the day. I was thinking that today. But you know who decided to put 24 hours in a day? God. There's, there's enough hours in the day. You have an illness. God is good. Let your tongues give thanks. Employ your tongues to the worship of the God is good, who is your creator and your shepherd who cares for you. Maybe you hobble a little bit. Maybe you're that lamb that needs a little extra help. The shepherd cares for you. He's not going to leave you behind. He's good. He defines goodness. Stop complaining about his providence. Turn your sorrows into thanksgiving. Why? Because God is good. That is at the bedrock of Christian assurance. That's why your life matters. That's why the 
evil that happens to you isn't meaningless, isn't pointless, isn't fruitless. Because God is good. I was talking to an unbeliever yesterday, and, and, and her one of her objections is, God is in control of all things and declared the end from the beginning. Why does my life, it's just insignificant then. And I told her I disagree with that. Because, because God has ordered and decreed my days from beginning to end, God has preloaded my days with significance and meaning. My life has meaning because God has put it there. If God hasn't laid my days out from beginning to end, and I am just at the pity of a merciless and pitiless and indifferent universe, evil that happens to me, wickedness that happens to me, is pointless and hopeless. But if God is good, he formed us and he cares for us, your days are filled with significance and meaning. So let's, let's stop complaining about his providence. Let's sing thankful songs with our tongues. Why? Because his mercy is forever sure. His mercy is forever sure. There's no doubting the mercy of God. There should be no reason to doubt the mercy of God. There's no weakness in it. There's no weakness in the mercy of God. His mercy will at no time fail you. If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not then give us all things? His mercy is forever sure. You can bank on it. You can put all the chips into that square that the mercy of God is sure. And that his faithfulness, it has stood at all times. At all times. Proven himself day in and day out and so many different ways that we don't even know where to begin to look. God has proven himself day in and day out. It's obvious that he's faithful. We have no reason to doubt him. And we have this promise. And shall from age to age endure. He's proven himself time and time again. His mercy is sure and it will endure. He will never fail you. You're welcome in his most intimate courts. He has redeemed you, sanctified you for his own glorious purpose. And by his grace alone, he will bring what he has begun to completion. We have his word. The same word that formed us all assures us that what he has begun, he will bring to completion. And so that's Psalm 100. These are truths that we all need to hear. I'll be honest with you. I, I went into this thing like, this is going to be a really just kind of basic thing. Psalm 100. Yeah, God made us. He feeds us. But as I began to think about it, I was like, wow. Wow. This is amazing. This does something to my soul that I desperately need. And I can read this, 
and it touches me and moves me, but it does something else when I sing this. Like it does something else, something bigger. I can't describe it. It's like Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. It takes these truths that are glorious truths and promises of God and welds them to our souls. So that day that all hell assails against us, all hell assails against us, these truths of God rise to the surface and we are able to sing a song of triumph that that we feast in the presence of our enemies because we've been shaped by the word of God. Now the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. Richly is the word that Paul uses to say when he has no other word to describe the, the perfection and the fullness of something. That the word of Christ dwells in us to the maximum. It's richly. And so we're able to do whatever we do. We're able to suffer in thanksgiving to God. We're able to rejoice in thanksgiving to God. We're able to work in thanksgiving to God. We're able to raise children in thanksgiving to God. And so that's why I want us to sing the Psalms. <laughs> that's why we gather for worship. That's why what we sing matters. And so um, I'm excited to sing. Thank you guys for listening to this. And I pray that it stirs your soul to Thanksgiving like it has mine, that, that we would be thankful um, in all things. So um, let's stand together. And let's let's sing this again.